Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 23rd, 2022. I'm Andrew, as always, from San Francisco on the Pacific coast of the United States. Um, sometime last year, uh, I had the historian Lawrence Burgreen on the show. He has a new book out. I guess it's not so new now about Francis Drake as a pirate and his relationship with Elizabeth I and the foundations of the British maritime empire. Uh, the book is called In Search of Kingdom, uh, and it's about Drake's, uh, successful attempt to sail around the world. The British, of course, ruled the high seas for better or worse. Uh, but it's a very checkered history. One of the most notorious incidents on the high seas when it comes to British colonialism, imperialism, trade, whatever word you want to describe, is the infamous mutiny on the bounty. Uh, uh, on the Royal Navy vessel HMS Bounty, which occurred in the South Pacific Ocean uh, in April 1789. Many of you will be familiar with the names Fletcher Christian and William Bly. Fletcher Christian was uh, uh, the rebel who took control of the ship, and Lieutenant William Bly was the, uh, the captain of the ship who was cast adrift and then came back to hunt down. I don't know whether you'd call them pirates or hijackers of their own ship. Probably in today's language, we'd call them terrorists. Um, this uh, mutiny on the bounty, of course, has been turned into three different films. One of them was the 1962. It was actually a, a failure of a film, but it featured Marlon Brando. It's also been the subject of a very popular novel, a fictional recreation of the mutiny on the bounty by uh, the best-selling author Charles Nordoff. Uh, and there's a new book out about the mutiny of the bounty. It's a kind of travel book which combines the narrative of the mutiny of the bounty with uh, a contemporary look at the Pitcairn Islands where the uh, where much of the um, the drama of the mutiny of the bounty uh, ended up, and it's by my guest today on the show, Brandon Presser, uh, a traveler. Or, uh, your name, uh, Brandon, uh, did your parents assume that you would be a traveler by calling you Presser? No, not at all. Actually, um, I think my parents were really curious where I came from because when I was little, I'd ask them, uh, instead of a present for my birthday, I'd ask them for a trip. Uh, and uh, they never really obliged. <laughs> Did they assume you wanted to get away from them? Probably, yeah. So this uh, mutiny on the bounty, as I said, it's a well-known story. You've tackled it, or you are tackling it, in a different kind of context. Do you remember when you first became aware of the story? What particularly intrigued you or intrigues you about the mutiny of the bounty narrative? Yeah, um, you know, I first heard about this story um, about 15 to 20 years ago. I was working for Lonely Planet at the time, um, back in the glory days of analog travel when people really used guidebooks. 
And we would have these group meetings uh, once a year where all the writers from all over the world would get together and we would talk about what we've seen and what we've learned. Um, and when you start visiting 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 countries, you start trading in obscure geography. And so a place that a lot of us ended up wanting to visit was Pitcairn Island. And, um, you know, so the yeah, it's, it's the geography. Um, and I apologize for interrupting, Brandon. The, the, the geography is remarkable. It's, it's you know, the, the Polynesia is itself obscure, but it's probably the most obscure island in Polynesia. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say so. I like to think of Polynesia as the blue continent because the size of one end of Polynesia to the other is going from, say, Lisbon to St. Petersburg. So if you're thinking about it in, in, in continent size, it's larger than the continent of Europe. And then Pitcairn Island is the most far flung. It is the far land, essentially the name of my book. So very briefly, uh, Brandon, tell me the story or what you think is the story, the true story of um, Mutiny on the Bounty. What exactly happened? Well, I would say starting off um, that we need to rethink of how we've cast the characters. Uh, you know, we think of Fletcher Christian, the hero. We think of Bly as the villain um, and that it was a noble act of love. Christian had fallen in love with this woman, Mauatua, on Tahiti and the other sailors had as well and they decide they don't want to go back to england and they all want to go back this is a fictionalized account that was made popular by nordoff and hall's novel i think the real story is an ensemble story and i would think of it more in a game of thrones kind of way where everyone is acting with their own motivation and their own self-interest and what comes together is this clash of cultures clash of castes uh, as everyone vies for what they want in life. Um, so it's Hobbesian. I'm you have a, a Hobbesian reading. And of course, perhaps the most Hobbesian of all novels was um, uh, Lord of the Flies, which uh, Mutiny on the Bounty kind of reflects or resembles in a, in a very creepy kind of way. It does. It all really devolves eventually. Um, you know, they seize the ship, they put Bly overboard, they disappear, and their whereabouts were a mystery for almost 20 years. And it turns out that they had found this island, Pitcairn Island, and they have this very Lord of the Flies moment, or if we want to modernize it, you know, we could say the Survivor uh, game show, where one by one, they plot against one another and murder each other. There are 28 people that arrive on the island when they're discovered 20 years later, 18 years later, only four of them are left and one of the original men. Why didn't they kill Bly? I've never understood why they just didn't shoot him. I go into a lot of detail in the book about why um, Afterwards, I think that Christian was, uh, he was from the upper echelons of society. Uh, his family had run out of their generational wealth, however, um, but I think he was well bred. And I think that there was something about him that knew that it wasn't gentlemanly to do this. Uh, he put Bly into a cutter, into a dinghy, essentially, thinking probably that Bly would die. Uh, somewhere in the middle of the ocean because the mutiny occurred in the open water. I think but putting a bullet uh, in Bly was just something that he couldn't do. 
Um, and then he, of course, faces the paranoia and the consequences afterwards when he arrives on Pickering Island trying to lead his community, but he's sort of felled by his own paranoia, constantly waiting for a warship to emerge on the horizon, find him and hang him for his crime. How often were mutinies back in the 18th century in, in the English Navy or for that matter, any of the European navies? Were they quite frequent or were they unusual? Well, what's really funny about Bly is that he does survive um, and he goes all the way back to England um, and the rest of his life is actually marred by continuous mutiny. Um, I, I don't, he wasn't despotic. He was actually really petty. Um, he, he name called and he made people feel bad. He would mock people, um, but he was actually involved in two more mutinies before his death. Oh, he was? So he was a really... An- Nasty piece of work. So he inspired mutiny. He did. He did. So it, it it started to become a pattern in his life. I don't think that there were a ton of mutinies um, at uh, during the age of discovery, um, but there were a lot that were pointed at him for his bad behavior. You note in the book that uh, and in your writing that it was rare to have piracy in um in in the Pitcairns or in uh, Micronesia or Polynesia, uh, that people turned on themselves. In a sense, it was an even more brutal world than the, the pirate world that uh, Bergreen writes about in in, in Francis Drake's book. Um, why no piracy? Was it was just too vast, uh, too difficult to actually pirate ships, and I guess not enough ships to actually jump on. Yeah, there was a scarcity of resources in the South Pacific. Um, this is a place of great expanses of water and deep water, churning water. And you don't have all of these little islands like you do in the Caribbean. Uh, you don't have places where you can hide treasure. Um, and and it was, I like to think of the South Pacific really as the last great unexplored place on earth. I think we often think about the poles because of the weather um, that it's difficult to navigate and difficult to discover. And uh, really, I think for me, it's this region that still remains undiscovered. What about the natives? Um, there is a, a fashion, we've done a number of books about what I would call nativism, about, uh, if not fetishizing, certainly idealizing pre-industrial society. How did the people end up on, um, uh, on, on, um, on, on any of the Polynesian islands, or for that matter, the Micronesian or the Melanesian islands? Uh, is this something that historians agree on, or is it still quite speculative? I think that there are a few different uh, point of views um, regarding how they settled. Um, and there's, of course, Kentiki um, and Herdal's uh, raft theory um, from uh, it's, it was drift sailing uh, from South America. Uh, then there's, of course, Asian origins as well. What we do know is they were great navigators and there is the hukule. Uh, there's using the stars to navigate. And you'll find uh, there is a theme of star navigation um, throughout my book. That permeates, in fact, both timelines 200 years ago and today. Um, but what is fascinating on Pickhairn in particular is that um, Fletcher Christian was looking for an uninhabited island. It was really important to him that he didn't have to deal with any locals, that he wanted to really disappear off the face of the earth. 
And um, when he arrived on Pitcairn Island, they started noticing that the plants were growing in geometric fashions, that there was evidence of gardening and mining, and it really scared him for his first three days on the island because he thought people were waiting in the brush, in the jungle to come out and attack. When in reality, the island had been settled 600, 700 years prior. Um, and it remains a mystery where those people went and if they had sort of the same Lord of the Flies thing happen to them. Your website shows you on Easter Island. Uh, I've actually been there, remarkable place. How does Easter Island, if at all, connect with this? Is it possible that the people who created the remarkable monuments on Easter Island went through the Pitcairns or had any connection with, with that Polynesian world? Or is that an entirely separate narrative? Genetically, they are cousins. And um, Easter Island is within this greater Polynesian realm. Um, but what we can look at is um, obsidian. Uh, there is an obsidian mine uh, on Pitcairn Island. It is one of the things that Christian noticed early on. And we find those bits of obsidian back on Tahiti. So um, through, um, I guess it would be carbon dating, uh, historians have been able to puzzle together that Pitcairn was still within the Tahitian realm. But I don't think they've found that obsidian on Easter Island as well. Any uh, any any theories of your own about how these remarkable monuments ended up on Easter Island? No, I <laughs> I have no idea. I, I spent, of course, a bit of time there. Obviously, you saw the photo. Um, I heard the theories uh, while I was there. I think what's really interesting is the direction that the Moai are facing. Um, that says something really interesting. Um, that they're facing inward and facing outward. And I think the direction of those moais gives a, us a bit of a clue um, of whether or not it was an inward looking culture or an outward one. Maybe they're designed to scare off hooligan English sailors like uh, the mutineers. Uh, when I went to, um, Brandon, when I went to uh, Easter Island, I flew from Santiago on a very nice jet. Your book, though, is very different in terms of. Uh, the narrative. It's its both a historical recreation of what happened in the mutiny of the Blantony, but it's also a narrative about yourself as a travel writer and the experience of going to the Pitcairns um, in, uh, in the 21st century. I'm going to take a short break, and then after the break, I want to talk about that experience of how you got there, of why it seems to be the, the farthest place in the world to get to, and what that tells us about the contemporary world and our longing to escape civilization. So we're going to be back with Brandon Presser, the author of uh, The Far Land, in uh, about 60 seconds, when we'll talk about the modern history of the Pitcairns. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Don't leave us. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this 
um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Brandon Presser, the author of The Far Land, a travel book um, about his own trip to the real life, the real wild island life of the mountainy on the uh, the mutiny on the bounty descendants. It's uh, the far land, um, and as he says in one piece that he wrote, he reached the farthest corner of the world in one rough trip. Um, he got to the Pitcairns, which are really beyond the map in a sense. How did you do it, Brandon? Tell me about this trip. How hard was it to get to the Pitcairns? Well, I would say Pitcairn is one of the places in the world um, that you cannot reach using commercial conveyance. Uh, so uh, National Geographic explores that it uh, takes longer to get to Pitcairn than it does to get to the moon. And uh, how I went from my apartment in New York City was I flew New York, LA, LA, Tahiti. Uh, and then I took a series of puddle jumpers to a smaller island uh, and then an even smaller island uh, called Mangareva, where a cargo freighter picked me up. And for three days, we sailed in the open water to reach the island. And that freighter visits the island four times a year to bring supplies. What did this trip teach you about the mutiny on the bounty? How, 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 how useful was it as an education, do you think, in making sense of a 200-year-old story? I think one of the most fascinating elements was what was coming off of the freighter. Uh, so you would get uh, these beautiful cards to the descendants of the mutineers, uh, inviting them to elegant European soirees. Uh, but then you would also have these goodwill donations of T-shirts uh, and uh, clothing uh, on the same freighter. So there's this duality that the, the legend trickles down to these so-called museum people. It's this living museum of the seventh, eighth, and ninth generation descendants of the world's arguably the most famous story of nautical betrayal, you know, ever told. 
you stayed with a couple of them. Here we have a picture for people watching of, of you with uh, the local Stephen Olive Christian, descendants of the notorious Fletcher Christensen. There's only 40 people, fewer than 50 people on Pitcairn. Tell me a little bit about them, how they received you, and, and, and what your impression was of these, these 40 or 50 people. So the journey for me began because someone reached out to me, um, offering me the opportunity to go. Uh, there are only 12 births on every sailing. Uh, so I had to plan the journey very far in advance. And it was to go in the capacity of a tourist and to write about my experience. So everyone on the island knew that I was uh, planning to write a magazine article about going and what it was going to be like and the different activities that you could do. And of course, there are no hotels or uh, restaurants or you know anything like that on the island. So I, I lived with uh, the two families that there are um, on the island, the Christians that you uh, saw in the photo. And then the other family is called the Warrens. Um, and I split my time living half with the Christians, half with the Warrens. And what I really found is that each family uh, lays a very different claim to the island and they almost live um, completely independently of each other. And on birthdays or different special events, everyone gets together in the town square uh, and celebrates all together. So uh, the title of my story, which I wrote for Travel Major Magazine, was uh, That Time I Had Dinner with an Entire Country. And what was that dinner like? Well, it was potluck, uh, since we couldn't really order anything from anywhere. I mean, I, how does it all work? I, in all seriousness, I mean, the food is all brought in. I assume there's, is, is there much local agriculture? There must be fishing, is there? Yeah, you know, I ate incredibly well uh, while I was on the island. The freshest fruit uh, plucked from every tree. It was funny because one of my first days on the island, Olive, uh, I told Olive I wanted to go on a hike by myself. You know, the island is the size of Central Park in New York City to give you a sense of scale. So um, there's this incredible verticality though. So it feels a lot bigger than that. And I told Olive uh, on my third day, uh, you know, I'm gonna go for a hike on my own. And you know, like any mom would tell their child, you know, oh, bring water, um, you know, bring a snack, you know, just in case. And she gave me a knife instead. And she said, you know, just cut a banana down from the tree when you want a snack. So that's, that's the vibe of the island and then of course that with the fishing and the they have gardens so it's fresh fruits and vegetables then there's of course um non-perishables that they keep in a small general store you note in the book um that we always are trying to escape but we never really can was this uh true also of the people living there had they traveled much had many of them been off the island there was this great pleasure that Steve took when the freighter left uh, and left me behind and disappeared into the horizon. They like being um, cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, and the thing that I noticed very quickly was that when I returned, everyone's first question was, wow, they must be so different than us. And what I found was this strange sameness. Um, there's this humanity, even when we disconnect ourselves from the rest of civilization. There's There are these certain things that make us human that we just can't escape. Uh, you wrote a, uh, a piece uh, for the Globe and Mail Canadian newspaper of how tropical islands became paradise. I assume that Pitcairn is a sort of 
the model, the paradigm of the, the construction of a paradise. Did it have electronic communication? Were you free of the internet over there, Brandon? I was told that there was going to be no internet uh, before I arrived. And one of the big things that I was told before I arrived as well was that um, the whole island runs on diesel fuel. They have a generator and they use it during meal times to cook. Uh, and then after dinner, they turn it off and then they turn it back on in the morning for breakfast. And you have this great silence when the whir of the generator goes down. Um, and it, the heat never really subsides either. Uh, so it's just this hot, sweaty sleep um, every evening. What was curious, however, was that they had just gotten uh, Wi-Fi internet on the freighter right before the one that I uh, arrived on. And what was funny is they were gifted uh, smartphones uh, from the British government and all of them really couldn't care less. They were using them as paperweights uh, when it was windy. You know, the, the houses don't have window glass in the windows. And so they would put their uh, smartphones down on stacks of paper or receipts uh, so they wouldn't blow away. We all think, of course, of uh, the Falklands, very different from the Falklands, but it's still part of the quote-unquote British Empire. Um, and I, I noted uh, earlier this month that for the first time since 2018, the Royal Navy visited the Pitcairns. Um, does anyone have any territorial aspirations? Are there any Argentine gunboats lying in wait to seize the Pitcairns? I don't think so. Um, I think that um, Britain is holding on uh, to the island for ceremonial reasons. And I think there is a push and pull. I think the Pitcairners consider themselves their own country. Uh, I think they think of themselves, you know, much in the way that, you know, Bermuda is sort of its own entity. They see themselves as a country of 48 people, uh, but they need uh, those uh, British taxpayer dollars uh, in order to keep the freighter going. I, I don't know how long the island would last completely on its own, despite them wanting to be a country of Pitcairn. In terms of the Lord of the Flies metaphor, do they have government there now? I mean, is there a, a prime minister, a president, a figure yeah. in authority who makes the key decisions of these 40 or 50 people on the island? They do. They have, they call him or her the mayor. And while I was there, it was Stephen Olive's youngest son that was the mayor. They have uh, a whole council. Um, actually, that includes a treasurer and a secretary. You know, it's a bit like a high school club in a way. It's all very small. Uh, and then every few years they rotate. So the person who's sort of second in command becomes the mayor, the mayor retires, and so forth. Did you learn anything political, though, in terms of your travels about the ideal political arrangements? Does it work better than the U.S. Congress, for example? Well, I think the fact that there are so few people uh, makes it really easy to manage. Everyone has a voice uh, and everyone feels heard. Uh, even um, I found uh, that th there were three children that lived on the island. Uh, when you're a teenager, you go away to high school in New Zealand. Uh, but even the three children were really precocious. They had a lot of ideas about the world. They were really capable gardeners. They knew a lot about the earth and everything around them. And there's something sort of special about growing up in this way.
Do you fear that a book like The Far Land might inspire too many travelers, that everyone's going to fancy now traveling there, having read your book? Um, well, I do hope to pique some refreshed interest uh, in the Mutiny on the Bounty and on Pitcairn, because this is the first time that the story has been told um, in a more equitable fashion, bringing in some of the women of color who have been disenfranchised in the past. Um, and so I, I do hope that um, this, you know, sparks an inter broad interest. Do I think people are going to go? I mean, it still remains very difficult to get there with only one or two spaces available on the ship a year. You also had, you had a piece out um, uh, in one of the online magazine in, in Harper's about where to travel in 2022. Alongside Pitt Cairn, if, if you have a taste for adventure, where can one go which might require less travel, less adventure than going to the Pitt Cairns? Well, I, it was pointed out to me recently that I have a thing for islands. Uh, back when I worked at Lonely Planet, I used to cover uh, destinations like Thailand's islands and Iceland. Um, and so I find myself really interested uh, in uh, communities on islands because there is a bit of a Galapagos syndrome everywhere you go. Uh, people think of when when you live on an island, you think of your the island as the entirety of the world. So uh, I love going to places um, uh, that I can discover in their entirety and kind of exist unto themselves. So I'm I'm curious to go to Madeira um, early uh, later this year, uh, an island um, settled by the Portuguese off the coast of Africa. Uh, I would highly recommend the Azores uh, as well. Um, things like that. Is that why you're talking to me from uh, Indianapolis in Indiana? <laughs> Not that exotic, unfortunately. But of course, uh, you, you said you spend part of your life in Indianapolis, which is about as unlike an island as anywhere in the world, right in the middle of a, of a large continent. What's the difference between Indianapolis and Pitcairn? Um, you know what? It, there really isn't a ton of difference. And, and that's really the thing in the book is that you go all this way and you find that everyone wakes up with the same hopes and the same dreams and the same fears and the same problems, no matter where you are in the world. We just have learned through different cultures and different ways of going about our lives that we deal with them very differently. Why do we always want to escape, though? Uh, you're a travel writer and I guess your business is a kind of escape or catering to others who can escape. I, I found a piece. Uh, online, it's not by you, uh, but a recent piece about 10 remote islands that are perfect for remote workers. And one of them, of course, was the Pitcairn Island. Um, why, particularly, it seems these days in the early part of the 21st century, why do we have this, this thirst, this appetite to escape? Well, so that, that actually kind of touches on the story that I wrote for the Globe and Mail about why are islands paradise? Like, why are we seeking out islands as the cure to all of our problems. And basically what, how I, what I posit is that um, uh, that actually originated from the mutiny on the bounty uh, itself because news got back to England um, about what had occurred. And of course, uh, all these captain's logs wrote about these beautiful women without any sexual inhibitions uh, and, and the elites in London would throw these lavish parties uh, and, you know, at that time, pineapples were worth more than gold. So they had largely fetishized this um, and there have been waves of its resurgence. 
um, you know, when Hawaii became a state, there was this interest in tiki culture, and it was happening just at the time that commercial airlines uh, went mainstream. So everyone wanted to go to Hawaii and Tahiti, uh, and it's been ingrained in our psyche to think of those places as paradise and as the cure for our uh, suburban ales. Brian, I was actually in New Orleans yesterday and I visited the World War II Museum, spent a lot of time thinking and looking at uh, exhibits about the war in the Pacific. Was that war, uh, was Pitcairn in any way affected by the war in the Pacific or did it just pass it by? Uh, it, it was affected only because they couldn't get supplies. Um, so they were on the verge of starvation because they couldn't get anyone to come to the island to help because the area was, um, you know, in such distress, but they, they weren't touched by the war directly. Why would they be on the verge of starvation if there's lots of bananas on the island and they can fish to their heart's content? That's a very good question. Well, the island goes through these peaks and troughs of overpopulation. And uh, when you are an island the size of Central Park in New York City, uh, you, um, your homeostasis, as they've learned over the last 200 years, is around 60 people. Um, so there have been points when the population was 200. And they, when the first time they reached 200 people, they wrote to Queen Victoria asking for assistance. And she offered them another island. Uh, it was a penal colony. Um, for the British Empire, and she offered them to inhabit the ruins of the lapsed colony, uh, and they took her up on the offer. Might be an appropriate place, or should have been an appropriate place, for Charles Darwin to visit. I wonder what he would have made of it. How much wildlife is there? Um, there's, there's not much. Uh, there are rats, Polynesian rats, um, and then you find a lot of different insects. I found what about uh, birds. Uh, there are some birds. Yes, there, there are so some it's birds. not uh, in a Darwinian sense. It's not remarkable as Easter Island was or so many of the other Polynesian islands. Uh, not in the regard of, uh, you know, the blue footed booby or anything like that. Um, it's more um, a, a unique plant life. Uh, so maybe less of an interest to a tourist in that regard. Brandon, you, you write in your um, uh, on your website that um, your current obsessions include uh, moleskin notebooks and Soviet history, K-pop and sandwiches. I, I'm sure you longed for a nice sandwich when you're uh, when you're on the Pitcairn. Uh, uh, Soviet history, of course, um, is particularly tragically relevant today. I'm curious on the moleskin notebooks front. Of course, these were championed by the great English travel writer. Uh, Bruce Chatwin, his book um, in Patagonia is is a masterpiece, I think, of contemporary travel writing. What do you think of of Chatwin, and what other uh, travel writers do you think people should read in addition to uh, your new book, uh, The Far Land? Well, I actually happen to have my notebook, my Moleskine notebook, right here. I carry around with me uh, at all times. Um, but I. Um, that's a good question. I um, have a friend from university, uh, and I really appreciate her point of view. Um, she's quite well known um, in the fiction space, uh, Maggie Shipstead. Uh, she has a book out now, Great Circle, that has won a lot of accolades. Um, but I think she 
she does quite a lot of travel writing as well. And she brings a really unique perspective and a unique point of view uh, to her work. And I, I really appreciate her work a lot. Maybe you can introduce me. Uh, so you see her as a sort of half travel writer, half fiction writer. Yeah. Good. And what's her best book or how many books does she have? She has three novels out. Uh, and her most recent Great Circle uh, is has a lot of travel in it uh, from uh, the Poles, uh, the Americas. Uh, it actually also has a two timeline um, structure as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a great read. Did you learn, by the way, before we finish, Brandon, did you learn anything environmental in your travels there? I mean, anything on global warming and on what we're doing to the... Yeah, I would, I would say that um, Pickhairn sits at the biggest reserve in the entire world. So when we talk about national parks and reserves and, and this, we often think of land. This is a marine reserve and it is the biggest one uh, in the entire world. Um, and I think that uh, being there and free diving all around the island, I, I better appreciate I better appreciated that our oceans are an incredible resource and we have to do everything starting now, starting yesterday, starting 10 years ago to better protect them. Well, I think my advice would be don't go to Pitcairn. It's too far and you'll probably destroy the environment. But instead of going, the next best thing, probably better than actually going, is reading Brandon Press's new book, The Far Land, 200 Years of Murder, Man Mania and Mutiny in the South Pacific is a it's a wonderfully creative book, integrating both the history of the um, uh, of of uh, the the mutiny on the bounty, as well as temporary travelogue of what it's like to travel to Pitcairn in the early twenty first century. Congratulations, Brandon, on this book. Finally, uh, Brandon Presser, author of The Far Land, one of our great travelers, who runs the world these days. Brandon, who's in charge? Who's in charge of the world? I I'm going to say. TikTokers are running the world. And as someone who is not super engaged in social media myself, and as someone who can safely say that there is no return on investment if you're a hotelier to bring an influencer to your hotel, uh, I would have to say, however, that um, TikTokers have an incredible reach and an incredible amount of influence for some of the smaller things. So if we can harness uh tiktok for good i think uh i think we can save ourselves